0: Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638.
1: And thanks.
2: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. 25 years after the worst nuclear catastrophe in history, the effects of Chernobyl's radiation persist. So to memories of those who cleaned up the disaster.
3: They were limited to 10 or 15 seconds to pick up a piece of radioactive graphite. They basically had taken a lifetime of radiation and they went back home.
2: 850,000 Soviet soldiers served as liquidators. Now many are paying the price.
4: When he was sick with cancer, he said, we sold our car to pay for the surgery. We sold our TV, our refrigerator, jewelry. Well, now my wife Lydia has cancer and there's nothing left for us to
2: sell. But in the abandoned radioactive zone, nature flourishes.
5: In one single day, I saw a herd of red deer, a herd of about 40 boars, four moose, and wolf.
2: Chernobyl a quarter century later, this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
5: Support for Living on Earth
6: comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
2: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. Pesticides are designed to kill pests, not hurt people. But now, three independent studies find two organophosphate pesticides, widely used on foods in the field, can be passed on from moms to their babies during fetal development, with devastating effects on the kids' IQs. The studies appear in the journal Environmental Health Perspectives, Researchers from Columbia University and Mount Sinai Medical Center studied pregnant women and their children in New York City. Epidemiologist Brenda Eskenazi and her team from UC Berkeley focused on agricultural workers' kids in Salinas, California. Dr. Eskenazi, welcome to Living on Earth.
1: Pleasure to be here.
2: So how great was the drop in IQ for the children who had been exposed to these organophosphates?
1: We measured organophosphates by something called dialkyl phosphate metabolites in the mother's urine during the pregnancy. For every tenfold increase in the mother's levels of these metabolites during her pregnancy, we saw a 5.5-point decrease in the child's IQ. That translates to meaning that the children in the very highest 20% group of exposure versus the very lowest we see about a seven-point difference in IQ.
2: So you looked at these mothers' exposures, and then you measured the children as they developed.
1: Yes, that's right. We enrolled women during their pregnancies and have been following their children up until age seven at the point of this study.
2: How important is this type of IQ reduction uh, of this you know, kind of level? What effect does that have on the child's chances of success in school?
1: Well, we are looking at a population level result, not an individual result. And so the way to think about this is that if you see a five or a seven point shift in the IQ in the general population, you will see more children that are going to need special services and more children that would be driven into the area of IQ that we would be concerned about them.
2: Should we be surprised by these findings? I mean, these organophosphate chemicals, they're sometimes called nerve agents. I mean, they're designed to affect the brain.
1: There is no doubt that at high doses, these chemicals are neurotoxicants. Children and farm workers have been poisoned for years at high doses. The question that we were faced with is what happens with low-level, maybe chronic exposure, but low-level exposure, to these chemicals, and how does it affect a child during a critical window of development?
2: These chemicals, how widespread is their use now? Will I find it in my house?
1: Organophosphates were voluntarily removed for home use in the early 2000s. However, they have been widely used in agriculture since that time. So, if I buy organic, do I lessen my exposure to these? Yes, you probably would have lower levels of exposure, if any. For individual
2: parents and children, these findings could be quite tragic. On a societal level, at the educational level, they, they could be quite costly. Do you have any idea of the economic impact of this kind of decrease in IQ is having in our school systems?
1: No, it would be very hard to estimate that. And also... It would be very important to make sure that parents know that eating a good diet may also affect neurodevelopment. And so we don't want to restrict people from eating fruits and vegetables because of their concern about organophosphates. That would be an anti-public health message. So
2: what are people to make out of, of this study?
1: What I would say is eat lots of fruits and vegetables. Make sure you wash those fruits and vegetables really well even if it has a skin. And if you can and afford it, eat organic. And if you're going to use pesticides in your home, even though we don't use organophosphates in the home any longer, we are still using other pesticides that we know even less about. And uh, the best thing would be to use integrative pest management where we don't use sprays, but we use baits and traps and other herbal remedies to rid ourselves of ants and roaches and other critters. Now, your
2: study is one of three that just came out. There were studies at Mount Sinai and Columbia University, and researchers there have just found similar declines in IQ of children exposed to these very same chemicals. Were you surprised by those findings?
1: Um, I was surprised that we saw the same types of associations in three parallel studies, and the fact that we saw similar findings is noteworthy.
2: So I can imagine a mom feeling guilty of getting these results and knowing that something that they ate prenatally is affecting their kids now.
1: I would hope not. I would hope that the mother would feel that she did the best knowing what she knew and she ate well and she tried to protect her child as much as possible. And that's really all the best we all can do is base our behavior on what we know now.
2: Dr. Eskenazi, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Brenda Eskenazi is a professor of epidemiology and maternal and child health at UC Berkeley. Climate change has been to court before. It's the subject of more than 200 legal cases across the country. But so far, only two disputes have made their way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The first time back in 2007, the High Court ruled the EPA has the authority to regulate greenhouse gases. Now the justices are poised to make another landmark decision. Whether states can force utilities to reduce their climate-changing emissions. Living on Earth's Mitra reports.
7: The states suing major power companies say they're already suffering the harmful impacts of climate change, and federal courts should force the country's biggest polluters to clean up. But that argument met considerable skepticism when it reached the Supreme Court, and not just from conservative justices like Antonin Scalia, who questioned whether people exhaling carbon dioxide might also be sued. The liberal side of the bench seemed unconvinced as well. Justice Elena Kagan suggested the lawsuit has no precedent. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg asked, couldn't this turn a federal judge into a kind of super EPA? Questions like that backed up arguments made by Peter Keisler, an attorney defending the electric utilities.
8: Uh, our position is that these issues are fundamentally important policy questions that have to be decided through
2: the democratic process.
7: Keisler says a lot has happened since the suit was first filed in 2004. During the Bush administration, the federal government wasn't doing anything to cut greenhouse gas emissions. But now, thanks to the 2007 Supreme Court ruling that gave the EPA the authority to address climate change, the executive branch has begun to act. And that, Keisler says, means the courts can't.
2: You know, that EPA and Congress both have weighed in on this area, Congress in the Clean Air Act and EPA in implementing the Clean
8: Air Act. Does it make sense to set up a parallel process in which courts would be asked to consider consider through tort litigation all the same questions that Congress and the EPA are wrestling with at the same time.
7: But the EPA so far is only regulating greenhouse gas emissions from new power plants. Rules for the dirtier and aging coal-fired power plants featured in the lawsuit aren't expected until next year. And that's if they come at all. Some members of Congress have vowed to revoke the EPA's climate authority. The states and environmental groups want a backup plan in case Congress and the administration balk. They argued in court that the promise of federal regulation isn't enough to get the courts off the hook. Lisa Heinzerling, a law professor at Georgetown University, says the issue at the heart of the case is whether federal courts can handle climate change claims at all
0: the kind of underlying idea there is this is a problem that's too big and too complicated, too new to be dealt with through law. And I find that premise scandalous, actually.
7: Before returning to teaching last fall, Heinzerling worked for the EPA, helping design policies to cut greenhouse gas emissions. The effort there is ongoing, but this climate case puts the Obama administration in an awkward position. One of the companies being sued is owned by the federal government, and the administration has had to come to the defense of the country's biggest polluters, even as it writes rules forcing them to cut emissions. The Solicitor General, speaking for the administration, told the justices that the global nature of global warming makes it suitable for the EPA, but too unwieldy for the courts. But Heinzerling says there's no reason all three branches of government can't help shape solutions.
0: Many, many people think that climate change is the most important environmental issue we face, maybe the most important issue we face, period. And the notion that this is something that cannot be resolved through law is, I think, a deeply uh, dangerous proposition.
7: Together, the five companies are responsible for 10 percent of the country's greenhouse gas emissions. But legal experts sympathetic to the industry's case think it's dangerous to allow courts to weigh in. John Massey is an attorney and a former Supreme Court law clerk.
6: There is a real risk here that if courts get involved, they could make the problem worse. So one thing a political branch can do is manage trade-offs and consider the whole problem. And one thing a court can't do is look at the whole problem, because a court can only decide the case before it.
7: That argument came up in court, and Matthew Levine, the assistant attorney general of Connecticut, one of the states bringing the lawsuit, said it's nothing new.
2: That's always been the cry
8: of uh, industry whenever there's any threat of litigation or or regulation, but that's just not the case. We're asking for reasonable, cost-effective measures that they can take to reduce their CO2 emissions.
7: If the court does side with utility companies, it might still rule in a way that leaves the door open for federal climate change suits in the future. Almost all of the justices seem skeptical of the industry's claims that climate change doesn't fall under the jurisdiction of federal courts. If not federal courts, they said, then the cases would be left to state courts. The industry lawyer responded he's confident power companies can defend themselves there. But law professor Lisa Heinzerling says, be careful what you wish for.
0: If the court reaches that kind of result, the interesting question is, would the people who have been fighting so vociferously against these claims in federal court, are they really going to prefer 50 different states handling these kinds of claims?
7: The Supreme Court will render a decision this summer. For Living on Earth, I'm Mitra Taj in Washington.
2: Just ahead, we commemorate Earth Day and continue our April update of stories from our archive. Today, revisiting the world's worst nuclear disaster. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Twenty-five years ago, April 26, 1986, at precisely 1.23 in the morning Ukraine time, the number no. 4 reactor at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant exploded. The graphite core of the Soviet reactor ignited and fuel rods vaporized, sending a plume of radioactivity high into the atmosphere. For nearly two days, Soviet officials denied anything had happened. Then the radiation was detected in Sweden, and Russian TV news had this short
9: announcement.
10: An accident has happened at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. One reactor has been damaged. The government has formed a commission of inquiry.
2: The Soviet denial delayed the evacuation of the irradiated region around the plant and the city of Pripyat, which noble workers and their families lived.
0: Attention, attention, dear comrades, to ensure your safety and especially safety of your children, it is necessary to temporarily evacuate the city and surrounding areas in the Kiev region.
2: The abandoned city of Pripyat is crumbling, covered in dust like a Soviet Pompeii. It lies in the heart of the zone of alienation. It's an area the size of Rhode Island. To this day, the zone is off-limits, a vast radioactive no-man's land. Now a quarter of a century after the disaster, we look back on this place and its people. We begin with a story Living on Earth aired 15 years ago on the 10th anniversary of Chernobyl. I drove into the zone where the remains of the doomed reactor were entombed in a cement and steel sarcophagus. It's a two-hour drive from Kiev to Chernobyl along rolling hills and peat bogs. Ukrainians say the soil here is so rich you can eat it. At least that's what they used to say. Today, a thousand square miles of land around the plant is off limits to most people. Well,
11: if the
0: science says it's impossible to live here constantly.
2: 18 miles from Chernobyl, we enter the exclusion zone. My driver, Petro, is quiet as we pass empty farms, homes, churches, and schools. A week after the disaster, 135,000 people were permanently removed from this area. This
11: is a tragedy.
2: It is our tragedy. This was a very good
11: place to live. What can we do? This is our fate.
2: To visit Chernobyl requires special permission and an official guide. We're joined by a plant technician who will monitor radiation levels. He sees the look in my eyes. He says we're completely safe. Still, I'm given special clothes to wear. A Russian hat, burly coat, cotton socks, gloves, leather boots and a face mask. Just in case. A faded mural on a vacant apartment building welcomes us to Pripyat. The town was once home to 45,000 residents, plant workers, and their families. The sign reads The Party of Lenin Leads Us to a Communist Victory. My guide, Alexander Shevchenko, deadpans an old party slogan. The people of Pripyat really did invite the friendly adamant to their homes. He laughs alone in the silence. But for our Geiger counter, the apartments are ghostly quiet. Plant officials delayed the evacuation of Pripyat for a day and a half. By then, Alexander says, the clouds of radioactive iodine had delivered intense doses to the town's children. Why did they wait 36 hours before they evacuated them?
11: They waited for the order from Kremlin. They knew about the danger but they waited for the instructions. I I think it is forever, it shouldn't be forgotten. How to forget it? How to forget this abandoned city?
12: 075
2: The radiation readings jump as we pass the remains of a contaminated forest, buried in a field. It's a two-mile ride from Pripyat to the plant. Chernobyl dominates the desolate marshland. It's a white, windowless monolith, a mile long and nearly a football field high. We're standing at ground zero. Today, what remains of the melted number no. four reactor is entombed in a massive 24-story sarcophagus, but even 300,000 tons of steel and concrete can't contain the intense
12: radiation within.
5: The levels on
2: our Geiger counter double when we point it at the sarcophagus. It's the most radioactive building on the planet. The amount of radiation released at Chernobyl was 250 times that of the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. After a minute here, Alexander wants to leave this place.
11: Why is that? Because it's rather high. You know, I've been inside the sarcophagus four times.
2: What is it like? What does it look like inside?
11: Uh, Racks. Ruins. Ruins, racks, and high level of radiation. (laughs) (laughs) Only two minutes allowed.
2: The Chernobyl sarcophagus was built in seven months, a Herculean effort by some... 850,000 Soviet soldiers, so-called liquidators. Shovelful by shovelful, the liquidators removed the radioactive debris and erected the sarcophagus. We were like ants, just as some were finishing their task, others would immediately take their place. And that's how, together, we were able to fight the radioactivity. The sarcophagus was never designed to last 25 years. Only now has work begun to build a new confinement structure. Lauren Dodd is managing director of the project to make safe what the liquidators built a quarter century ago.
3: What they did was heroic. You know, and I shudder at the thought of anybody ever having to work like that again. Many of these people, and you've seen them in the videos, went up on on the the roof of the turbine generator hall and uh, were, were basically given instructions to run out into the hall to pick up a piece of fuel or radioactive graphite, carry it 30 or 40 meters, and uh, throw it over the wall. Oftentimes they were limited to 10 or 15 seconds to do that. Uh, Once they did that, they basically had taken um, a lifetime of radiation and they went back home.
2: What's the condition of the sarcophagus now?
3: Well, it's better now than it was two or three years ago. When, when that was built, it, was, it had a design life of 10 years, and there were large, large holes you know, throughout the facility uh, where birds and small mammals could enter. Things were kind of stacked together like you might build a house out of, out of a deck of cards. And uh, we undertook some measures uh, starting six or seven years ago to stabilize both some of the internal structures as well as some of the external structures Today, in that particular work that we did, we think it's good for the next 15 years. Even having done that, you know, I would be concerned here if, if we were to have particularly high winds. Um, I would not have a lot of confidence that uh, that, it, that it could survive even 20 or 30-year natural events.
2: So now you're in charge of building this giant, um, how would you describe it, a hangar?
3: Well, we call it a new safe confinement. But we often refer to it as the arch because, in fact, it's it's an arch shape. It's um, being made of steel. It's uh, being constructed uh, some couple of 200 meters away from the damaged reactor in order to, to reduce the radiation doses to the people who are building the arch. Once it's fully constructed, it will be slid from the construction location to its final resting place.
2: I heard that you could fit the Statue of Liberty in it.
3: You can fit the Eiffel Tower or the Statue of Liberty inside of it. Um, The the width of it's um, close to 900 feet wide and the length's um, almost 500 feet. The new safe confinement will actually be slid over the sarcophagus in July of 2015, and uh, then it'll be commissioned, and it's expected that commissioning will be completed by the end of 2015.
2: So if there were an earthquake and this the sarcophagus in the entombed reactor did shift or collapse, the structure would contain that? Is that the idea?
3: You know, the new safe confinement serves several purposes. And and one is that, that if, if, in fact, the unstable structures uh, were to collapse prematurely, the new safe confinement would confine uh, the dust and any other aerosols that are generated. The, the second thing is it, it provides a place and, and the capability for starting to dismantle those structures uh, that are unstable. Um, And and this new safe confinement structure, one of the features is that it has a very, very large overhead crane system in it uh, that will be used to uh, remotely disassemble both the old sarcophaguses as well as uh, unstable portions of the reactor. It'll provide a clean, safe environment for doing that.
2: What about the money? Do you have enough money to pay for this?
3: Well, no, we don't. For the total project today, we're about 600 million euros short. I'm fairly optimistic that, that uh, the international community will continue to support this, and, and uh, a good portion of what we need to complete the work uh, will, will be committed.
2: But here we are, 25 years out from Chernobyl, and, and many people have forgotten it, and uh, you don't have enough money to complete your work, at least right now, and yet we're betting on future, future, future generations to deal with this.
3: That's right. I mean, this is a consequence of Chernobyl, and and, uh, certainly for the 100 years lifetime of the new safe confinement, there's going to be, it's going to employ the children and the grandchildren of some of the the current workers on the Chernobyl site.
2: Well, Mr. Dodd, thank you so very much. I really appreciate
3: it. It was my pleasure.
2: Lauren Dodd is managing director of the new Chernobyl safe confinement structure. He lives just outside the evacuation zone. Author Mary Mycio has been inside the zone more than 25 times. She's author of the book Wormwood Forest, A Natural History of Chernobyl.
5: The first time I went there, I was absolutely stunned to find out that it was, first of all, not this big, giant, dead parking lot that I had imagined. It It was really green. And that when you get out into the wild, it's actually there are parts of it that are very, very beautiful. You have the wetlands and peatlands. In one single day, I saw a herd of red deer, a herd of about 40 boars, four moose, and wolf. In the absence of human activity, uh, it becomes a very inviting environment for wildlife. But it's radioactive. Well, they can't tell. Radioactivity is invisible.
2: But isn't that the point? You can't see the radiation, yet there's been this terrible disaster there. Can't you tell that radiation has its biological effect?
5: Uh, well, I guess you could if you did large animal studies and um, and had, you know, random samples or comparative studies, but nobody is doing that. And I mean, yes, you could, you can study mice because all you theoretically need is a couple of mouse traps and some cheese and you'll get your sample of mice. If you want to study, let's say moose, you have to do some big game hunting and it takes a while. It's not like they show up on command. So um, nobody has been providing that kind of funding right now.
2: But we had no gross genetic damage that Mm -hmm. we can see now, no giant insects and and birds? No,
5: no. (laughs) No, nothing like that. If there are mutations being born in the wild, they die. They get eaten by scavengers, so nobody actually finds them. Nobody has identified any mutations except for... Um, these uh, studies done on swallows, where they have some, they have the pigmentation damage, like al- albino spots on their faces.
2: What about the forests and, and the flora, the trees? Have they been affected? Can you see uh, mutations in them?
5: Well, there are places where you can see um, it's called radiomorphism, which is radioactivity affecting the orientation that the plant has in the way that it grows. So in very, very radioactive areas, you will have these kind of stunted pine trees that look more like bushes.
2: So now we have this largely abandoned area. When do you think people will be able to come back?
5: Oh, it depends. There are parts of the zone where people could actually live now because the lines were drawn in a very, very rough way. Um, Other parts, the parts that are closest to the reactor, um, as a practical matter, never. They won't be able to come back because plutonium, you have plutonium there, and that's got a half-life of 24,000 years. So unless they figure out a way to clean it up or... Um, I don't know if there's a, an ore to that. I, I I can't see how people could come back there in a safe way.
2: When I was in the zone around Chernobyl 15 years ago, I interviewed an old couple who who moved back into the zone, and they're not alone. There there are a bunch of people who have moved back. Have we have we seen any changes in them? Any biological effects?
5: Well, the irony is that a lot of the people who went back. They're doing better than people of their own age who were evacuated because the impact of radiation takes so many decades to show up that if you're an an older person, you'll die of something else before the radiation will kill you. And the people who were evacuated, let's say, from these beautiful, really, truly beautiful, lush wetlands into, let's say, the suburbs of Kiev in a you know, high-rise apartment building, that's a traumatic thing. And it, a lot of the older people had a very, very difficult time adjusting, while the people who went back, they were sort of in their old houses. And yes, there's radiation around, but a lot of them prefer to be home, though I would, I would also caution that a lot of the people who live in the zone aren't there because they have happy stories to tell.
2: Mary Mycio is author of Wormwood Forest, A Natural History of Chernobyl. This song is by Danilov Laya. His father still works at Chernobyl. The song is called Our Small Town. Michael Foster Rothbart recorded it. He's a photojournalist who spent two years in and around the zone documenting its people.
4: My commitment to this project started when I discovered how other photojournalists distort Chernobyl, you know they visit briefly and they expect danger and despair, and so that's what they photograph uh, photos of you know deformed children and abandoned buildings. and I feel like this sensationalist approach really obscures more complex stories about how how these communities adapt and survive. So I really wanted to photograph the suffering that's there, but also the joy and beauty, the endurance and really the hope.
2: One of your photographs is of, of a woman named Tanya, who was a Chernobyl engineer, and and she was a winner of the Miss Atomic Beauty pageant? Yeah, it's, I,
4: I think it's hilarious, but every year all the Ukrainian nuclear power plants have this beauty contest for their workers, and that year, that was 2009, she won. And uh, it's really interesting. She is actually the third generation in her family to work at the Chernobyl plant, and uh, a story i love about her is i have a picture in my current exhibit in chicago of her husband sergey in this uh, liquid waste treatment facility he's just walking past all these this endless row of barrels marked with radiation symbols and this is the place where sergey and tanya fell in love these workers are working at the plant their lives are all about chernobyl and so of course They meet, they flirt, they fall in love, they get married, they have kids. And more often than not, the next generation also grows up to work at the Chernobyl plant.
2: I like this picture of um, Leonid. He was a mailman who was delivering top-secret mail to the military headquarters in Chernobyl.
4: Yeah, Leonid Bukowski was reassigned from his job as a mailman to deliver this top-secret mail. And he's now in a wheelchair He told me that in Chernobyl, here's here's what he said. He said, in Chernobyl, no one knew how serious it was. We wore no special clothes. He said, I'm 55 years old and no one needs me. He feels like there's not much left for him to do in this life. And and I heard that sentiment often. Uh, There were actually 850,000 liquidators, the people who worked in the cleanup after the accident. And this was a moment of crisis when they were pushed to their limit and they did everything they could for their country or for the world. And after that, you know, their lives never seem the same.
2: One of the, if not the saddest photo I think you've taken, and the one that kind of has burned an image in in my mind, is the one of a farmer. And he's got a tattoo of his wife on his shoulder.
4: So his full name is uh, Vasily Kozachenko. I, I was walking through the town of Kiev and I heard him half-drunk, crying in his front yard, and I peeked over his fence, and I thought, he's never going to let me photograph him, but I, I screwed up my courage to knock on the door and ask, and he let me in and talked to me, and we just talked for a few minutes. And he has this tattoo of a woman, and I asked him about it, and he told me that his wife had died the previous year from cancer. She died of liver cancer after a long illness. And so after she died, he tattooed her picture on his shoulder as a, as a personal memorial. And while I was working on this new exhibit, I, I had my assistant in Kiev do some fact-checking, and she found out that Vasily has now also died. He died last year of stomach cancer, and he was 57.
2: You photographed a Chernobyl engineer who had worked at the plant for 24 years. Uh, I'm looking at the picture of Victor.
4: Yeah, Victor Gaidak was an engineer at the plant, and... He continued to work for almost a decade after the 1986 accident. And then in 2004, he had colon cancer and had surgery. And one thing he told me, he told me that when he was sick with cancer, he said, we sold our car to pay for the surgery. He said, we sold our TV, our refrigerator, jewelry, everything we could. And then he pointed to his wife, Lydia, next to him and said, well, now my wife, Lydia, has cancer and there's nothing left for us to sell.
2: Photojournalist Michael Foster Rothbard. He recorded this choir of Chernobyl workers who call their group Inspiration. To see some of Michael Foster Rothbard's Chernobyl photos and for links to his touring exhibits, go to our website, loe.org. Coming up, Hillbillies, Cajuns, Coal and Oil How Fossil Fuels Foster Stereotypes. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for
6: the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment, and from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI. Public Radio International.
2: It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Ahead, how a desert wren keeps its nestlings cool. But first, this
10: cool fix for a hot planet from Sean Falk. street lamps that illuminate our roads at night don't do much during the day. But that idle time spent in the sun may change soon. Engineers say the fix is simple. Turn the street lamps into solar panels. Researchers from the Denmark-based company Scotia have developed a solar lamp they call SunMast. SunMast is the first street light designed to generate energy from the sun during the day and feed that energy into the local power grid. The street lamp is fashioned with a new type of photovoltaic solar cell specially built to handle dim and indirect lighting. This allows the lamp to collect light efficiently, even though it faces the ground. It can even gather light on cloudy days. Its creators claim that sun mass generates more electricity than it consumes. Developers are currently testing the product in the UK, so it may not be long until solar street lamps begin to light up cities on this side of the pond. That's this week's Cool Fix for a Hot Planet. I'm Sean Falk. And if you have a cool fix for a hot planet, we'd love to
2: hear it. If we use your idea on the air, we'll send you a shiny electric blue living-on-Earth tire gauge. Keeping your tires properly inflated can save you hundreds of dollars a year in fuel costs. Call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or email coolfix, that's one word, at LOE.org. That's coolfix at LOE.org. One year after BP's Deepwater Horizon well exploded in the Gulf of Mexico, comes news that BP will pump a billion dollars into restoration projects. The money will be used to rebuild marshes and barrier islands along the Gulf Coast and protect wildlife habitat. Residents along the coast have just marked the anniversary of the oil disaster that killed 11 workers. Just two weeks earlier, West Virginians paused to remember the nation's worst coal-mining disaster, The explosion at the Upper Big Branch mine claimed 29 lives. The two disasters, just 15 days apart, give us a vivid glimpse of the true costs those regions pay to provide us with the energy we use. Living on Earth, Jeff Young spoke with two writers, one from West Virginia, the other Louisiana, who have chronicled the ways coal and oil have shaped our sense of these places and the people who live there. BP's oil spill was the biggest, but far from the first.
6: So as Louisiana officials sought fines of a million dollars a day from BP, Bloomberg reporter Ken Wells investigated what the state had done to punish other oil spillers.
12: Louisiana gets 4,000 spill alerts from the Coast Guard a year. So it's it's the oil spilling the state and the union. And yet fewer than one in a hundred oil spillers are penalized in any way And the average fine for an oil spiller in Louisiana, even a cereal spiller, was about $3,000. They have created a culture in which it actually pays for them to pollute.
6: Wells is a Louisiana native. His articles and books explore the complex interaction of oil, environment, and culture in his home state. There are oil jobs, of course, and state revenue. But there are also the spills and toxic air emissions from refineries. Wells says the industry's greatest mark may be on the land itself, miles of canals for oil and gas pipelines that cut
12: through the Delta's Great Marsh. And so vast stretches of marsh that were once you know, robust and healthy are dead and underwater. And there have been some very smart scientists down there who've, who've actually done studies and put the estimate that can be traced to oil development at about 36 percent of all the wetland loss.
6: With the, with the land melting away and fishing at risk, what does that mean for the people who are so closely tied to the land and to fishing?
12: Well, you know, I, I think this has set off an, an existentialist crisis there um, in, in a way. Um, you know, it's hard to think of very many places in America where the fate of the ecology and the fate of a culture are so instricably intertwined. I mean, I, it, it's hard to imagine the Cajuns without their marshes and their bayous Wells speaks with some authority on this
6: as he grew up on a bayou, Bayou Black, in Terrebonne Parish.
12: We lived in a little farm right across from the bayou and, you know, learned to swim there amidst the uh, cottonmouths and alligators.
6: But Wells did not learn the language that defined Cajun culture and community.
12: My mother, who was a Cajun French speaker, was born in 1926, and she remembers well, late 30s and 40s, this influx of people from texas and louisiana coming to work the oil fields and there was this huge denigration of the culture you know they found these people who many of them didn't speak English very well if they spoke English they spoke with a with an accent and they they began to ridicule them you know that the, the term coon ass became sort of the chief pejorative that you know rednecks used against Cajuns and My mother, in the middle of this denigration, uh, begins to feel bad about herself and her culture and, and does not teach me the language. From the
6: 1920s, Louisiana law prohibited children from speaking French on school grounds. Just as the growing oil industry straightened the bending bayous into linear canals, the dominant culture sought to mainstream the Cajuns. This was even reflected on the silver screen. In the 1953 film Thunder Bay, Jimmy Stewart plays the first offshore driller on Louisiana's coast.
12: Look down there. All you can see is water. But if you dream real hard, you can smell the oil. Can't you
9: smell it?
6: Stewart's nemesis is a rowdy Cajun who fears the drilling will kill his shrimp. In the movie's climax, Stewart confronts a Cajun mob.
12: All right, now you may put me out of business, all of you, but that isn't important. The important thing is that there's oil under this gulf, and we need it. Everybody needs it. You need it. Without oil, this country of ours would stop, and it'd start to die. You, you can't stop progress. Nobody can. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm I'm kind of shocked that the Louisiana Oil and Gas Association hasn't dusted off and sort of used as the promotional message. You know, their their message, they're always on message. We're here on a holy mission to get out the oil and gas. We need this, you need it, you know, we're gonna give you jobs, and just stand aside and let us do our thing. And and you know, unfortunately, that tends to be some of the attitude that's still there today.
6: The end of Thunder Bay has Jimmy Stewart and Progress triumphant as a gusher of oil showers onto the Gulf waters.
12: <laughs> <That's> the <end. laughs>
6: Nearly a thousand miles away from Wells's Bayou Black, writer Denise Jardina grew up in Black Wolf, a coal camp in West Virginia's McDowell County.
9: We lived in a house that was owned by the coal company. Uh, the coal company controlled the local political machines, the local school systems, built the churches, owned the company's doors, and uh, it, it, was, it was a totalitarian system in many ways.
6: Jardina left the coal camp and discovered that there was much more to Appalachia than just coal. She studied history and found, to her surprise, that the region had a rich culture and deep roots.
9: If you had asked me when I was uh, 12 years old what was my history, I would have said, we have no history. Those cultural, historical references were destroyed piecemeal uh, over 100 years ago. And um, what took their place was this, again, this, this totally controlled system run by the coal industry with little emphasis on connection to the land or a connection to the past. I really, um, you know, as I grew up, learned that there are structural reasons for the problems that we had, and I just wanted to tell that story. Her novels Storming
6: Heaven and The Unquiet Earth trace generations of families through the turmoil of the coal industry and the fierce battles to organize miners. And Jardina explores the ways outsiders eager to exploit the region's mineral wealth depicted the Appalachian culture and determined its fate
9: the appalachian stereotype of the you know toothless barefoot ignorant and violent hillbilly uh, actually can be dated precisely back to the time the coal industry came in uh, you know that the national media took a murder and turned it in you know fabricated it into this this very large Hatfield and McCoy feud which was then used to justify coming in and taking over appalachian land and this has been documented by scholars uh, The New York Times in 1890 noted that land was being taken over in the mountains by the coal industry and said that's fine, that these strange people can go live their squalid and ambitious lives somewhere else. That's where the Appalachian stereotype came from, and it's been used down through the decades then to denigrate Appalachian people.
11: The Real McCoys.
2: Genetic deficiencies. Isn't that
9: Happy Possum
3: Day! Y'all come back, yeah.
9: And you know the only sin people committed was living on top of coal. Um, I mean, the things that people put up with here in the coal fields uh, wouldn't be allowed anyplace else. Uh, Those counties are among the poorest, uh, least educated counties in the United States of America. And in fact, in terms of health indicators, you're talking more like a third world country.
6: If you had to sum up, how would you describe this relationship between coal and the place where you grew up?
9: Um, Well, it's sort of like um, the relationship between a drug addict and the drug, (laughs) I think. Uh, People... Know how harmful it is. They know it's been bad. But after, you know, 120 years, 130 years of dependence, uh, it's hard to break the habit.
6: Jardina's metaphor of addiction also comes up as Ken Wells describes Louisiana's relationship with oil. In fact, as you listen to these two writers, Bayou Black and Black Wolf Coal Camp don't seem so far apart. They're linked by a common experience with the black minerals beneath them. And now they're linked by the timing of two tragedies. Jardina and Wells see little evidence that what happened to the Upper Big Branch mine and Deepwater Horizon rig has resulted in much change.
12: I think it genuinely shocked people. And I think this, you know, changed, you know, a, a number of minds and attitudes. The real question, the real test, I think, is, a, is whether what can be done is affordable or whether really it's, you know, time is sort of running out and it's too little, too late.
9: You know, what's been done in the year since it it occurred? Nothing. What's Congress done? Nothing. You know, if 29 people had been killed in an upper-class community, (laughs) that would have gotten some attention, but uh, whether it's the Louisiana oil fields or coal fields in West Virginia, any place where you have a major extractive industry and that's the dominant industry in a place, then you're going to have the same situation. We're the cannon fodder for the energy war, so... That's that's basically it.
6: Authors Denise Jardina and Ken Wells. There's more about them and the places they're from at our website LOE dot org. For living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young.
2: Thankfully, Earth Day renews our spirit and reminds us of the precious, tenacious nature of life on Earth. We offer up this from the Arizona desert. In today's Bird Note, Mary McCann considers the nesting habits of America's largest wren.
8: In late April, in the Arizona desert, it's already over 90 degrees by 11 a.m., and the mercury is still rising. A cactus wren sings, perched atop a many-lobed cactus. Then it hops down to its nest, tucked among the spiny lobes of the prickly pear. In a desert realm where it's hot enough to fry an egg on a flat rock, how can the delicate nestlings of a cactus wren survive? Well... Cactus wrens, which may nest several times between March and September, carefully orient their nests in tune with the season. Their bulky twig structures, shaped roughly like footballs, have a side entrance. That tubular entrance curves toward the inner chamber. When building a nest for the hot months, the wren faces the opening to receive the afternoon breeze. This circulates cooling air through the chamber and over the chicks. (laughs) By contrast, a cactus wren building a nest in early March orients the entrance away from the cold winds of that season, keeping the chicks snug and warm.
2: That's Mary McCann for Bird Note. For photos and more information, fly off to our website, loe.org. On the next Living on Earth, we travel to Borneo, or Kalimantan, as locals call it, where an international effort is underway to restore land ruined by a failed rice-growing scheme. I think this will probably be
4: the world's largest effort to rehabilitate a degraded peatland and lowland area that's ever
2: been attempted, so it is big. Turning a fiasco in the field into a model for restoration next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Balinski, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shreeskandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Corkins and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Sean Falk and Wynne Tucker. Jeff Turtner is our technical director. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out the Living on Earth Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies, Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation,
3: supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy,
2: productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org.